0: Have you ever woken up from a dream and you remembered it, which doesn't happen often for me, and you just felt that there might be some significance to the dream? You're not sure what it is, but there might be something about it, and you start wondering what it is about the dream that you need to know. I'm not talking about some of the dreams that God gives people, like when he comes to Muslims and shows them an image of Jesus or has them calling and and he uses that to lead them to faith. This is something way less obvious. This is something that, uh, you know, just kind of plant something in your mind, and it's just a little niggle that's there that goes, what if, what if this could be something? A Couple years ago, I woke up from a dream one night, and in the dream, I was in a a gun battle. I had a, a handgun, and I was uh, firing at people, and they were shooting at me, and I was like behind a car, ducking and trying to shoot them, and I don't remember who they were. I don't know why I was doing it, but at the end of the dream, before I woke up, just before I woke up, I, I had this sensation of a bullet nicking my neck, and I put my hand up to my neck, and then I pulled my hand back, and it was covered in blood, and then I woke up. And in that moment that dream just stuck with me and i started to wonder does this dream have any significance the interesting thing was that during that time you might remember if you were here part of southridge that i had been sharing with the church that i had a cyst on my in my neck and i wasn't sure what it was uh why i had it but i was undergoing some uh you know to figure out what it was and about a month and a half after that dream it was I discovered that I had stage three thyroid cancer. And then another month after that, I ended up having a surgery which removed my thyroid and a number of my lymph nodes. So in essence, I ended up having this big scar on my neck and there would have been a lot of blood when they were doing the operation. And so it's moments like that where you go, hmm, maybe God was giving me a forewarning. I'm not sure, all I can do is wonder about it. But I do know this, he never sent me an angel to interpret that dream, if that's what that dream meant. Last week, we started into Daniel chapter 7, and David reminded us that in this part of Daniel, 7 to 12, we can often get stuck in trying to understand the visions, and we can get sucked into what he referred to as the prediction addiction. And we often miss what God truly wants us to say, to say to us in his... uh, uh, his writings of this, this variety, of what he gives Daniel in terms of his vision. And so I want to jump into Daniel chapter 8, and we're going to look at Daniel chapter 8 today, and to see what God has for Daniel, but also what he has for us. So we're going to start in verse 1, and it says this. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. After the one that I had already appeared to me, In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a a ram with two horns. Standing beside the canal, the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the others, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue it from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now jump down to verse 15. 15 says, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel! Gabriel! Tell this man the meaning of the vision. So he came near the place where I was standing. I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me up to my feet. He said to me, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in time in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. You see, the beginning of this chapter tells us that seven and eight are connected in some way. And this vision that Daniel receives is just a couple years later after the first one. And there are some similarities, but there are also some differences between the two visions. In this vision, we are given, uh, or Daniel is given a vision of two animals that we recognize, a ram and a goat. We know what those look like, unlike the visions in chapter 8, which there are four animals, and they're weird animals, they're hybrids of animals we might recognize, but they're not really the animals that walk this earth. The imagery of a horn is used again in in chapter 8, and we need to remember that in the Eastern culture in this time, a horn would represent power. It would represent a king, and so that's why it's so prominent in these visions. And in chapter 8, we actually end up having more clarity about what the vision actually means than we do about in chapter 7. We find out because God tells Daniel that these two animals represent two very specific kingdoms the Medes and the Persian kingdom, and the Greeks. And the large horn of the goat represents what we find out later on that Daniel doesn't know Alexander the Great, who ended up conquering the Persian Empire in a mere three years. And at its height, Alexander's empire stretched from Greece all the way to India. And while Alexander was a young man still in his 30s. He ended up dying at the peak of his power. And when when he died, his empire was split up between four of his generals because both his sons ended up being murdered. And then that brings us to verse 9. So let me start verse 9. Out of one of them, speaking about the horns, came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land, and that means Jerusalem. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up as as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifices were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. When I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Then if you jump to verse 23, it says this. This is the interpretation. In the latter part of their reign... When the rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not of his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. You see, Daniel gets told that there'll be four kingdoms that will emerge, and out of one of those kingdoms, a king will become greater and will actually devastate the Jewish people. If you look at history, you realize that one of those four kingdoms that emerged after Alexander was the kingdom that Seleucus, the general, founded. And as you continue to observe history, you will realize that the eighth ruler in uh, in that dynasty was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And when you compare the, the actions that he took in his life with some of the things that are said in this vision, You can see why a lot of people believe that he is that little horn that grew big. For instance, it says that he will be a master of intrigue. Antiochus usurped the throne by stealing it from his nephew, who was the rightful heir. That he would become strong. He Antiochus launched a uh, ruthless conquest and enlarged his territory. It says that he will destroy the holy people... Antiochus suppressed the Jewish worship. He replaced the Jewish high priest with someone he wanted. He outlawed circumcision. Uh, in fact, if women uh, performed uh, circumcision on their sons, he would take the mother and the son and throw them off the city walls, killing them. He made it a crime to possess the Jewish scripture. He burnt them whenever he found them. He, uh, uh, he stopped Sabbath and festival celebrations. He desecrated the temple by erecting an idol of Zeus and then sacrificing pigs, which were unclean animals to Jews, on the altar. And he considered himself superior. Uh, He actually had coins minted with his image on it with the inscription, Theos Epiphanes, which literally means God made manifest. He considered himself basically a representation of God on earth. He, is truly, he was truly a terrible man, and he truly did terrible things to the Jewish people. And it's no wonder often people refer to him as the Old Testament Antichrist. And yet, I think we need to pause here for just a second and be reminded that in the Old Testament, there's a couple of ways that prophets, prophets functioned. The normal way when you read the Old Testament, the normal way prophecy functioned is you'd have the Old Testament prophet would come and warn the Jewish people of an impending disaster or judgment. And he would call them to repent of their sin and return to God. And if they did that, the promise is that God would restore them. Uh, and that you see that in a number of places in the Old Testament. But then there is a different type of writing, this writing that Daniel is doing, apocalyptic writing, where the writer is writing out of suffering, meaning that the intended audience that he is writing to are already suffering. It's not a warning to them. And his writing into their suffering is done to provide some measure of hope, which begs the question in chapter eight, where is the comfort? Where is the hope that is listed here? If you remember back from last week in chapter 7, you have this amazing scene of the throne room with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man coming in. And it provides a really good context to all the terrible things going on, this hope that is there. But what does chapter 8 have? It really only has verse 14 as this measure of hope. And what does verse 14 say? Let me remind you. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings then the sanctuary will be reconstructed that is the only hope really that we see in this entire chapter and how is that even hope it's a hope that the suffering is limited that it has an end point this whole number of 2300 has a lot of discussion around it wondering what does it actually mean there are some that believe it actually means 2300 days which is a little over six years there are others that believe that it's not, it's actually only 1,150 days because they link it to the sacrifices in the temple which were offered in the morning and the evening. And they understand it to mean that it's 2,300 uh, 2, sacrifices that are missed, meaning that it's 1,150 uh, 1, days. And here's the thing either of them could work when it comes to. Uh, understanding whether Antiochus is this person. You see, it was uh, about six years from when Antiochus replaced the high priest and put his own guy in, to when the Maccabees led the revolt to reclaim Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. But it was also about three years from when Antiochus set up the idol of Zeus in the temple and the revolt happened. So either of them could be correct if we think Antiochus is this big horn. But what is this comfort? This comfort that Daniel is told that the suffering that will happen will end at some point. And it's a reminder that evil might be winning in the moment, but God is still sovereign and that suffering will end at the appointed time. There's a lot of debate around what it means when when Daniel is told this is the end of time or the, the fulfillment of wrath. And most commentators believe because of the context that this isn't talking about the end of the world, but this is actually talking about stuff that happens before Jesus comes. And it is a reminder to us that evil might be winning right now in our lives, or we might see it winning in the world, but that God is still sovereign and he's in control. Think about this uh, from Daniel's perspective. He is in Babylon still. And the Jews are spread out throughout Babylon, the whole empire. The temple is not rebuilt. It lies in ruins. And I wonder what Daniel first felt or thought when he saw this vision and he realized that the temple gets rebuilt. How much joy he would have held... had, how much hope he has. But only that hope is crushed when he realizes that there is a bunch of suffering that's going to happen to the Jews in the future. And I wonder how he felt about that. Because remember, he is in exile. He is living the judgment that God had proclaimed upon Israel. And I wonder if he thinks, like, didn't those guys learn didn't we learn that when God restores us, we need to follow him? Because if we don't follow him, judgment comes. And I wonder if he's a little bit of heartbroken as he looks into this future. And he's wondering why they should suffer more. Didn't they learn their lesson about trusting and following God? And in his current state of exile, he realizes that dark days are still ahead for the people of Israel even though Daniel has no idea how far ahead those days are. He doesn't realize that it would be about 200 years until Alexander shows up. He doesn't realize that it would be probably another 150 years for Antiochus to show up. He is seeing things far in the future. And yet, it has an effect on how Daniel reacts. Let me read the last verse of chapter 8. I, Daniel, was worn out I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. You see the effect of this vision on Daniel is, is it, it exhausts him. It appalls him. It freaks him out. And it is beyond understanding. And I, when I read that, I asked this question to myself. What did Daniel not understand about this vision? And it got me to thinking... When, it, when we think about events in our lives, there are there's the what of the event and there's the why of the event. And it's obvious that Daniel understands the what of the prophecy. He knows what is going to happen even though he may not be able to fully get his mind wrapped around it. And we sit far in the future looking backwards so we fully understand what this vision is talking about. We understand the what. But I think it is the him trying to discover the why it would happen. Why would the Jews be in such a state after being restored to their land, after the temple being rebuilt, that they would find themselves again in a place of suffering and exile almost. And I think it's this trying to discover the why of something that we often get lost down the rabbit hole. It happens in our lives. We can understand the what of a circumstance. We can talk about the details. We can know uh, things that precede and, and, and when things happen and what happens afterwards. But oftentimes in our life, we are left with a question. Why did it happen? And we have no answer for it. We often have no answer why a child dies. We have a no answer for why a parent suddenly walks up and leaves their family. We have no answer for why God allows suffering sometimes. And I think Daniel was wondering about the why. That's what he didn't understand. How could they be in that position? And for a man of faith, because we know Daniel's a man of faith, we have looked at at that over the first seven chapters of this book. He is living the consequences of a nation's disobedience. How could they return to disobedience? It baffles him. And and you might be asking, okay, Brent, how do you get that? How do you why do you think that? I think there's one verse that makes me Think that that's the reason why he's struggling and it's verse 12 and it says this truth was thrown to the ground That's what happens during this time Truth is trampled on that's the image I get it's the concept of truth being dismissed kind of like our society that doesn't believe in truth anymore. Just whatever we want to believe is truth. And that truth is thrown to the ground, we are told. And so how do, we, how do we throw truth to the ground? We throw truth to the ground when we forget who God is. We throw truth to the ground when we discount his power, when we dismiss his goodness, when we forget about his love or we discount his grace. We throw truth to the ground whenever we diminish who God is. And I think it's something that people struggle with. A lot of people read this chapter in chapter 8, and they discount this chapter. Because they read it, and they go, how could Daniel know the specifics of what history would happen two, three, four hundred years later? How could he know that? It's impossible. And they discount the very belief that God could be sovereign, that God is omniscient, and he knows how history is going to unfold. They can't believe that about God. So they discount Daniel, they discount this chapter. They believe, their explanation is, is that some later person wrote this, this chapter after all these events had occurred. They can't fathom that God would know what lies ahead. We throw truth to the ground, when we discount who God is and what he can do. But you know what? Suffering also brings us to a place where we can throw truth to the ground. Because in our suffering, we often find ourselves doubting who God is. You see, suffering often makes it feel like God has forgotten us, that he's forsaken us, that he doesn't care about us. And it can make us discount God. C.S. Lewis... uh, Has written a great little book called screw tape letters and David mentioned it last week in chapter 7 But I just want to read you a little piece of it today And for those of you who don't know the screw tape letters It's a collection of satirical letters that are written between a senior demon to his nephew a junior demon on Helping him understand how to undermine someone's faith And so he says this and his, his nephew's name is Wormwood you must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power and the enemy is God in this instance, to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human's will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. You see, he cannot ravage, ravish. He can only woo them. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the very beginning. He will set them off with communication of his presence, which, though faint, seems great to them. But he never allows the state of affairs to last for very long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. He leaves the creature to stand on its own legs, to carry out from that will alone his duties. He wants them to learn to walk and therefore must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe for which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. You see, Jesus comes along and says, we need a childlike faith to come to God. And in part, I think we need this childlike faith because there's a lot of things about God that we truly don't understand. They're hard, they don't make sense. And it takes faith to accept them. It takes a childlike faith. And yet there are people who start out with a childlike faith, and yet they congratulate themselves when they believe they have gained knowledge and have grown up and put away some of those childish beliefs. And what they end up really doing is throwing truth to the ground. They come to a place where they no longer believe in the miraculous. They come to a place where they downplay sin and the need for repentance. They come to a place where they are further and further away from God. What truth about God have you thrown to the ground? Jesus says that he is the truth, which means that if we throw the truth to the ground, then we throw Jesus to the ground. The New Testament tells us that if we are Jesus' followers, we are to walk in the truth, we are to live in the truth, we are to worship in truth and spirit, we are to speak with truth and love. All these aspects of truth, we are to live, we are to embody them. And the New Testament warns us and gives us this truth that much like Daniel was warned, to follow Jesus invites suffering. It invites suffering into our lives. So don't be shocked when suffering occurs and yes in our suffering we often feel distant from God we don't feel like we hear him or feel connected to him but don't throw truth to the ground in that moment be reminded of what Peter says in first Peter chapter 4 verse 19 when he says this so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good It's the same action that we see Daniel live out. After he recovers from this devastating prophecy, this vision, he goes about his business, the thing that God had called him to. Wormwood is warned about the same thing, to fear the believer that even in the midst of feeling abandoned or forsaken, still obeys what God calls him to do. Peter encourages us to step out and do the good that God wants us to do, even if we are suffering. You see, our faith develops when we can't see or feel God and yet we commit ourselves to obey him. Daniel knew at the end of this vision that the Jews needed God to show up, to act in order for them to survive. And he sees that hope instilled in this vision that God will not allow the suffering to continue forever. There is an end date. He does show up. We need the very same thing, but we have something that Daniel never had. We have a greater understanding of God's plan of salvation for us. We know that God sent his son Jesus to die for us. We know that Jesus in dying paid the penalty for our sin. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. We know that God showed up and that because of what Jesus has done for us, he can rescue you and I as long as we put our childlike faith in him. Maybe all we need to be reminded about today is this, that old preacher slogan in referring to Easter. It might be Friday. It might seem dark. It might seem hopeless. It might seem like there is no way out. But Sunday is coming. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this message of hope. Lord, I pray for us today. I pray that we have not thrown down truth to the ground. I pray that you would search our hearts and our minds and reveal to us if there is an area where we are doubting you, where maybe in our suffering we have pulled back from you, speak to us today. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering, who are in the midst of the darkness, who are in the midst of pain, who are in the midst of a wilderness, who seem far from you, encourage them today to continue to follow you, to continue to obey. Lord, thank you for this message of hope. Thank you for this reminder that you have acted on our behalf and that because of Jesus, we have a hope that never dies. Thanks for joining us today. I pray that... uh, You will be encouraged because of this message. Uh, If you're new to Southridge, I encourage you to go to our website at southridgefellowship.ca, get connected with us, find out a little bit more about us, uh, shoot us an email so we can get to know you. And I hope and pray that you will spend some time just thinking through the questions that will show up after we're finished. Spend some time praying about them. See where God wants to speak to you and then live that obedience out this week. Have a great week, Southridge.